you have to have a human component. And that's where I've really, I think, become more present as a leader. I, I used to say very frequently that you can never, I can never be the smartest in a room, but I can be the most prepared. I maybe as I get a little older and more into this role, I am starting to also say, and I also want to be the most present in the moment, understanding, hearing, learning. The fabric, you know, of our of Columbus, like any large city, is its people. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. My guest today is Megan Kilgore, city auditor here in Columbus, Ohio, where I live. Now, if you're like most people, when you hear the word city official, I suspect you think right away, mayor, police chief, fire chief. But auditor, what does the city auditor do? Well, here in Columbus, the auditor is essentially the chief financial officer for the city. And our auditor plus our mayor together uh, are the city's executive branch of government. As auditor, Megan sets the city's spending levels, is responsible for collecting tax revenues. Uh, she manages a multi-billion dollar portfolio of debt that helps finance the city's projects and also a multi-billion dollar investment portfolio. More importantly, for all of us who live here, she's a problem solver and a solution provider who helps our city sustain vital services and prepare for the future. Megan likens all of this to being a creative chef, tossing ingredients together in a kitchen one at a time until a great dish emerges at the end. We'll hear more about that as we go through our conversation. She is a true energizer buddy crossing gracefully and seamlessly from policy to people to politics across the city and representing Columbus on the national and even international stages. Join me now for a fascinating look inside a city and how it works with Megan Kilgore. Welcome to the podcast, Megan. Good morning, Kathy. It's great to be here. Glad to have you. Now, I happen to know a few things about you that are probably not common in the public record, and I want to start with one of those. You grew up in small town Ohio, down in the southeast corner of the state, and I happen to know that at the age of nine or 10, when most of us had you know, pop idols and rock stars on our walls, you had only two posters, neither of which was a pop idol. 
Who did you have on the walls of your bedroom at age nine? And what led you to have that strange pair of people in the first place? <laughs> well, I think uh, what's more amusing is the fact that whatever security clearances you have provide you with a great amount of perhaps useless information, but I love it. I'm delighted by this. Yes, I grew up in Gallipolis and I, I had this kind of awesome upbringing. And for, for those you know listeners from around the world, Gallipolis is at the southernmost point of Ohio. It's where it, the Ohio dips down. And I grew up on the river, but I had this beautiful kind of duality, if you will, of childhood. I grew up with a single mother who was also a liberal arts educator and with almost like this uh, con continuous pursuit of knowledge and just patience. Uh, but I also grew up in a place that I could play and I had endless miles to roam. We never locked our doors like a lot of folks, but we had endless playtime and it was a really special place to grow up. Just outdoors exploring along the river or oh, completely. sports and, and games? So every part of my childhood, every single day was spent outside. You know what? Next time I, I see you, I could show you some of the scars from my playtime because <laughs> I was really good. I was somewhat fearless when it came to things like climbing or exploring or digging or, you know, pretending I was finding treasure, which I still do. But I also, I think, was a late bloomer to the world of physics. And so when I would do these kind of crazy stunts, sometimes I would not consider the physics aspect of it. Gravity would get you. <laughs> I have all kinds of banged up knees. I have scars from, from scooter flips, uh, from falling out of trees and just about everything else. But part of that like theme of exploration, which I know your podcast is, is deeply committed to, was my childhood. And part of that was my mother saying, you know what, you can learn anything you want to learn. Never stop learning. And so when I was young, I was really quite obsessed with two things, space and public service. And so getting back to those two posters, I had Margaret Thatcher and Sally Ride. <laughs> now, what you may not know, but perhaps your security clearance has already told you, <laughs> is that also on those walls included later in probably the mid 80s, you. Oh, dear. I added John Glenn. I did add, um, oh, this gets kind of funny, but later, Bo Jackson. And uh, Chris Sabo, remember Chris Sabo yeah. uh, played for the Cincinnati Reds and wore the goggles. I love that guy for some reason. I still don't understand that part. But I grew up with an absolute, I don't know, I, I just completely idolizing women leaders who were fearless. And you were certainly one of them. At age nine, did you really think public service? I mean, was that the phrase in your head or was there... A a more general notion. I mean, what, what really drew you to, to Margaret Thatcher other than the you know, prime minister of England and such a prominent and clearly powerful woman, but did that really click in your nine-year-old or 10-year-old head as public service? You know what? It was, it was honestly less about Margaret Thatcher, but more about like what she embodied. And so I can probably answer it better by, by talking more about my mother. My mother was a lifelong educator and what I saw in her was public service. She taught whenever I was growing up, she taught at college, she taught at various levels of public education. But when I was, uh, as a single parent, she adjusted her schedule to fit my, my needs, my schedule. And I played every sport possible. And so my mother was teaching at the elementary level, multiply disabled, so severely cognitively disabled students when I would say I was in mostly elementary school. And so that was what I saw public service. And before the word, let's say, intersectionality ever entered my brain, 
I saw my mom approach education and mentoring and teaching her students who were kindergarten through third grade. And I saw intersectionality be very important to her because she knew, for example, that race and poverty had to be linked. They could not be solved as individual problems. They had to be solved together. And so that was more of my inspiration for public service was actually seeing the steps and in one single classroom that could be achieved. Margaret Thatcher just happened to be a fearless woman at the, <laughs> at the international level that I thought was, was quite interesting. So it was that sense of boldness, fearlessness, reaching for stars, doing yeah. grand things that that was what was attracting you. Is that right? I love the idea of a person being able to make things better and the, the fearless pursuit, if you will, of, of understanding what can be done and what can be fixed. Um, I think, you know, even carrying that into my, my leadership today, I think government sometimes gets ourselves in quicksand where we're not willing because we don't have perfect solutions to take initiatives or to make decisions. And, you know, I think some of that does come back to, well, it's the taxpayer dollars. Yes, but there's also a significant cost of doing nothing. And that's where I, I love what I do in this office because the daily decisions that we make can often greatly influence the well-being of a small business, a large business, or, you know, just a, a mom and pop. Let's come back to the young Megan. I've got lots of things I want to explore with you about what a city auditor is and does. But there you are, tomboy. Take us forward from the young Megan exploring along the river in Gallopolis, Ohio. What started your thinking about college? What was your thought as you moved through high school and towards university? And what were your ideas at 16 or 17 about what you wanted to pursue in life? You know, leadership always came very natural. It was very comfortable for me. I tried to, I think that I, I was tempted to be the president of everything that I could. I just, I felt really comfortable and natu uh, very natural in it, but I love the ability just to affect change. And I, I say there's something um, somewhat addictive about public service. You know, every single day I can walk around downtown Columbus. I can walk in neighborhoods. I can walk in areas of the city that are largely in, in disrepair. And I look at the opportunities. And I love, you know, for example, starting my day by watching the city come to life. I love it. And there, every single evening when I go to bed, I think about what did we accomplish, but more importantly, what's still on the table and what still has to be done. And so I remember, you know, feeling that way for as long as I can remember, Kathy, to be quite honest, that pursuit of public service was real. There was never a time I remember thinking in fourth grade that I always wanted to run for office. Really? In fourth grade? Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you not think that you wanted to go to space in fourth grade? I didn't. Uh, yeah, I looked at the early astronauts and really admired and was attracted to the adventurousness and the capability to think of something no one had done before and figure out how to do it. That that really attracted me. But I did not make a connection to I want the job astronaut. I just wanted to have that kind of quality in my life. And then I was sort of triangulating as I went along my academic path, trying to make decisions that I felt would put me in, in pathways and activities that would be like that. But I, I never did attach a specific title to it. But you had a, a presumption that you would pursue something, I suspect, that required fearlessness. Probably, uh, I would say that. But I was certainly, I, I would try pretty well anything 
with, I think, <laughs> I think I was a little better at the physics than you. I have fewer scars, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, I, I tell you, I, I, I actually, right now, I still to this day have a scar on my right knee from, I, I, I'll tell you what I was influenced by. Well, remember the old double dog dares? Right? Oh dear. Yes. Yes. And I was, I couldn't say no. And it was a front flip on my little scooter. And it was off of my friends, what I can perceive now is a, a relatively large hill of a, of a driveway. Then it looked like the Matterhorn, right? So I, I hit that. I was going full speed and I was like, I can totally land a front flip. I was maybe nine and I didn't. I had no clue. I had no clue what I was doing. But I, I still look at that scar and I think, wow, that's why I'm not an astronaut because the physics <laughs> <laughs> did not come naturally. I thought it was chemistry that did you in. You are correct about that too. Chemistry, I, I did go to space camp and I loved, loved it. I, I absolutely loved it. But yeah, the, the hard sciences, I, I think I'm much better suited in public service than I was on a shuttle mission. When did chemistry take you out of play? <laughs> you know, I, I probably joked about that. I actually didn't mind chemistry. What I, I really acknowledged was the complexity. And I just fell deeper into love with, let's say, the people, the people form of, uh, of service and the people form of sciences. Yeah. So from Gallup List, did you finish high school there and head off to university at where? I did. So I was, I was, I, you know, uh, finished high school in Gal Police. I'm still friends. Like one th really special about my upbringing is that we're, a lot of us are still really, really, really good friends. I, it was almost this like beautiful idyllic childhood where we had a lot of fun. It was really, really lovely. And so I had my eyes set on Washington, DC. And I was like, you know what, that's where I want DC or bust. I'm ready to go. And Kathy, I was lucky enough to get into a couple of really good schools. And then I think some reality set in where I looked at the cost. And as I mentioned, you know, single mother educator at the time, um, I was really aware of, frankly, the tuition at some of these really good schools yeah. was a heck of a lot more than she had made. And I had to really do some soul searching. Serendipitously, though, at the time I was looking at, at this, the John Glenn then school at the Ohio State University formed. And that's the School of Public Policy. That's exactly right. And because of a lot of the leadership work that I was doing in, in high school, they somehow found me. They came down, they met with me in Gallup Police, they found me. And I will say that was one of like, you know, we can look back and see those milestone points. All of a sudden, that, that school fit like a glove. I felt so comfortable. I was part of the very first year of the living learning program where they put us all in the same, you know, half of a dorm. And it was spectacular. Mr. Glenn was still alive. He was very active that year and he opened up doors of access. And like, that's, that's really where things change those points of access. So what kind of access and experiences did, did that program give you? I think because of its, you know, first, you know, couple of years, there were so many notable public, you know, uh, elected officials, leaders in different administrations that came to us and, and had conversations and they were conversations. These were not speeches in an open room. These were sitting down having like fireside chats. And I'll give you an example. One of the uh, alumni interviews that I did for one of the schools I was looking at, I, and I was, I was lucky just to test pretty well, but she worked for Betty Montgomery. Oh, yes. Betty Montgomery was, for those who are not from Ohio, the attorney general of Ohio. And a brilliant, a really brilliant public leader. And 
so I, I had just this kind of, again, serendipitous opportunity because the woman who I interviewed with for the school in DC, she said, you know what, if you by chance decide to stay and go to Ohio State, please do call us. I'd love to get you in for an internship program. And so that first week when I was in the John Glenn School trying to get my bearings at this monstrous university, one of the first, maybe third, third speaker was Betty. And I was uh, fortunately gutsy enough to go up and introduce myself. I had done a lot of research on the office and I shared with her that I really, you know, even though we were never members of the same political party, I really, really, it was kind of in all of what she had done as a female first, as a leader. And I offered to come in and volunteer. And that led to a four-year internship with her. Wow. And she's still to this day as the best manager I've ever had. Yeah, she is quite a star. Mm-hmm. So when did you start? You always were, I mean, you're, you are the consummate extrovert, Megan, and fearless and daring. And is that in my things. file too, Kathy, extrovert? No, it's just careful observation. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Casual observation is not all it takes, actually. You always are very active, whether that was your, your tomboy years along the river. And I've heard you speak frequently about volunteering. I'm curious about where two other threads come into your world. Your first experience volunteering for a political campaign mm-hmm. and you know the, the Glenn School, Glenn College now of public policy, that's not the B school. That's not the place you learn high finance typically at, uh, at Ohio State University. So where and how did you develop your financial acumen? Oh, that's a great question. Um, That was always very innate. I've always loved economics. I I think economics really does tell the story of either a population, a city, a government. I I love what economics can do to explain. So um, that's probably at Ohio State is where the world of economics more, you know, let's say opened up. And I remember it very particularly being uh, the first few economics classes I had, I was just like, oh, not my favorite. It was very kind of like, you know, uh, just definitional, you know, not my favorite. And then I had this amazing professor from Latin America who educated me on sustainable farming. That opened up my eyes as to what financial models can do or so to improve a, a social ill or an economic ill. Like it got me really excited about what, how we can, we can make change through good economics or good financials. So long story short, I, I, I ran some campaigns. I got active. I wanted to understand. I think, you know, when you look at running for office, Kathy, you have to solve the what. What office do I want to run for? The why and the how. The why is what about public service drives you? What about that particular office drives you? But the how is how in the heck do you set up a campaign? Where, how do you take steps forward? No one ever said to me, here's the red carpet, you know, walk down it and you're going to be able to run a campaign. It doesn't work that way. You have to figure it out yourself and then, you know, bring in the right partners. So I was really trying to understand that last bit, which was the house. So I volunteered for some campaigns and I got to know my predecessor, Hugh Dorian, who was the city of Columbus's, you know, the city of Columbus, the 14th largest city. He's the city's longest serving executive, 50 years in service. So my predecessor was elected for 11 consecutive terms. He had some appointments too. But what sparked you? Still curious to understand more what your sense of motivation was about running for office. Why an elected office? Why not a, an appointed office? Uh, I know you did a stint, I think, in a, as a private sector financial advisor yeah. uh, advising this city. I'm still trying to figure out 
how those pieces came mm. together and which one led to which. You see, you know, you coming from the family that you did, if, if you're working in a, as a private sector financial advisor, you're helping to make many of the same kind of changes happen for a city that you could do in an elected office, but you've got less of the scrutiny, you've got you know, <laughs> less of the pressures, you're probably making better pay. So yeah. back up and slow down and take me through those threads and how so they- let me just get this straight. Together. Your equation on the table is, why would I take a job with less pay, more pressure, more sleepless nights? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I don't something have an like that. For it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an answer. But trace, trace back, you're, you know, you're now at university, you're gregarious, you like to be yeah. involved, you like to lead, you're getting fascinated by economics. Yeah. How does this translate into your first steps toward on the road to where you are now? I would actually probably turn the same question back to you, right? There is something innate in you that is fulfilled by the ability to serve. And so when you have a calling and it is real, it, that I felt it, it was tangible. I wanted to run for office because it's the, it's the, the, I don't know, the most, I'm the for, most fortunate person in the city. You know, it is a, the absolute gift of a lifetime to be able to run for office. And that's not, it's not cheesy. I'm being you know, really sincere. I got to cut my teeth with individuals who showed me through their own daily existence that service was a privilege. Pressure is a privilege. I don't think there's anyone better suited to have that, that statement uh, applied to than you. Pressure is a privilege. And what I drove me about elected service is just the ability to truly serve the people. And maybe that is, you know, the extroversion in me. You know, I, I think data can solve a lot of problems, but we have to have people. I think I'm so kind of sick and tired of hearing a lot of folks talk about, you know, we have to just stay with the digital dashboards and see what all the data is telling us to make decisions. No, we have to, you know, our, our the spirit of our communities lies in its people, and we have to see how they're doing, how they're feeling, what they're what they're concerned about, and how they're living. But my decision to run for office was always there. I just had the great fortune of having someone like a Hugh Dorian. I mean, this guy, and you know, I'm sure you've, you have followed in the footsteps of people, but this is exactly how I would feel following in your path. <laughs> if I was coming behind you in a position, this is how I would feel. You know, my predecessor was here for 50 years. I did leave. I left, a, a, frankly, a very lucrative career to be able to come back and run for office. But I did so with this amazing opportunity of following in the, in the footsteps of someone who changed the city for the better. And, you know, Kathy, he actually won and his resume is, is, is as long as yours and his awards as long as yours. But one of the awards that he has received is an actual medal from the Pope himself. Wow. And so, you know, every day I kind of looked at that and I was like, oh boy, <laughs> you know, but what a challenge to live up to. But you worked with him alongside him as an advisor before you ran for office. Tell me, so let's back up because a lot of listeners, but most listeners won't know don't know Columbus and won't yes. know Hugh Dorian. I had the good fortune to also work pretty closely with you uh, when I came to town in 1996 to head up the Science Museum. And yes. that was a whole part of a big piece of, of downtown development and revitalization. He was a delightful, pleasant, approachable teddy bear of a guy with a razor sharp mind. Uh, as Megan said, he'd been in the job for 50 years 
Megan, you describe him periodically as the Derek Jeter of city auditors. He won essentially every single award it is yeah. possible to win, including including that medal from the Pope. So tell me a bit about your relationship with him during those years that you were advising. Was he, did you feel sort of like a protege? Was it mentor friendship combination? Yeah. Now, this is something that perhaps your listeners can can certainly relate to. Working for this gentleman was like working for the hardest professor that I had in grad school. Every single day, you know, I could think, man, I, I just did something I'm really proud of. I put together, you know, a, a, some sort of work product. I was really proud of it. And I could take it in and he could he could spot a mile away an error. And that's because he still did things longhand, you know, in mm -hmm. my world, which is finance. And I, I do want to kind of come full circle. because I've, I've worked on Wall Street, but now I've like to think I brought the experience back to Broad Street. And, you know, through, I don't know, maybe through that experience, I can see now, you know, only years of being on the job and going through things like the Great Recession, you know, like the housing crises and so forth. Does that really propel you to be able to be better in service? And he had 50 years, like the, the rings of his tree were robust, yeah. you know, and that is something just really special. So that when I grew up with him, and I, I will say, I, I kind of grew into my career through him, what he did, and I hope your listeners have had this experience too, was he selflessly supported my pursuit of my passion in a way that I hope I can, I can do for my, my, you know, a, a wonderful team here today. He said to me, you know, use my connections and go forth and conquer. And so I was one of the, I, I, the youngest person ever appointed to the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board um, at the federal level. I've been very fortunate to have spent now a, a chunk of my career working in the private sector. And what, why I did that, Kathy, my, the intent behind that very seriously was I knew how to run financially a highly rated city like Columbus that was a large urban city with growth with a lot of, you know, frankly, professional service industries, but I had never worked with, let's say, governments that relied upon iron ore or governments that were, you know, at major threat for climate change. And so for my personal resume, I needed to expand my horizons and I wanted to go out and do that. And this position afforded me that opportunity. What kind of portfolio did you work when you were on Wall Street? Tell us more about those years. So I had a whole smattering of different clients from states to cities, to counties, to school districts. And, you know, the common thread through all of that was my job. Um, and what I probably do best in my current job is to take the complex stuff and try and figure out what is our solution. And, and like what I mean by that is, you know, when we have something as daunting as, let's say, affordable housing, because it is very complex and it has been rooted for, for a long time. It's very daunting on the surface, but if you start thinking about, all right, you know, one day, just like a really complicated recipe, the most complicated recipe you have ever, ever done. One day you add a little flour, next day you add some eggs, next day you add some water. And over time, you're going to be able to build and find the solution that makes sense. And that's how I like to approach work today. What were you doing for those civic clients? Were you managing their investment portfolios or getting them loans and finance instruments? That's a great question. 
So, you know, when governments just carrying out their typical capital plans and capital by definition is going to be, of course, the large projects with brick and mortar, maybe it's roads or bridges or subways, you know, what have you. That's what was, that was my role was helping these larger entities. And I use the word government broadly because government can also include higher education down to, to, uh, to small townships, helping them plan for and finance their capital projects. And so that was really a pleasure, you know, and I'll, I'll tell you an example. I got to take a lot of that. I, I really like the complex stuff and that's where government can be creative. I was actually out with my, my former business partner, Jim, absolutely brilliant guy. And I was with his sister. They live in West Hollywood. She's a producer. She's a really creative, you know, big time movie producer. And she looked at me and she's like, what exactly do you guys do? And I looked at her and I said, you know, what do you, what do you mean? And she's like, well, like you just like kind of work behind your computers and, you know, and I said, listen, you, I know you have Emmys on your, your mantle, but your brother is one of the most creative people I've ever met because what he can do with taking a project that has an end goal and figuring out the financing behind it and how do you make it sustainable? How do you maintain affordability? How do you keep it so that it's equitable? I love the words equitable infrastructure so that everyone has fair access that's what we do. That was the greatest, I don't know, probably benefit of being able to work across the country is seeing how everyone else does it and learn. And I got to bring all that, all that back to the city of Columbus. Speaking of the city of Columbus, the title of your job is auditor. Mm -hmm. You know, you say city to somebody and they're probably going to think mayor, police chief, fire chief, maybe dog catcher, but auditor. Audit like sit in on a class or audit like audit my books to see if I'm cheating financially. Yep. But there's much, much, much more to the job of auditor, at least as it's constructed here in Columbus. You're kind of the chief financial officer of the city. Give us a description of the kinds of elements of your job portfolio, the, you know, the debt, the tax, the investments. What do you do? Absolutely. So the word auditor, and it is, you know, a lot of your listeners will be familiar with just as you've just implied what the word auditing, you know, kind of traditionally means here in the city of Columbus, the mayor and I are the executive branch. He's the expenditure side and I am the revenue side and our office, you know, what, what my office, it was a very large office here, but we bring in all of the city's revenues. But on top of that, we also have to predict how much revenue are we going to be you know, bringing in for next year? We set the ceiling for how much the city can spend. And so through the pandemic, every single day, it was trying to figure out in real time the economic impacts of the pandemic because our taxes were immediately affected, of course. Therefore, we had to look at service levels. Could we still maintain service levels the way they were and so forth? So bringing in about a billion dollars a year is a large part of the job. And so to correlate that, you know, for viewers, that means we have to really apply business principles of, of a Fortune 500 company. So a lot of my strategic plan right now is modernization and technology, working smarter. That billion dollars in the pandemic, you know, Columbus, like many tier two cities, has a concentration of employment inside the city limits. And a lot of people live in suburbs that are technically outside the city limits. Is, is that why your taxes, the income taxes were affected? Because people are now not working in town, they're working from home. Our taxes were actually impacted because wages drive what we receive in incomes. 
income taxes, excuse me. And so when we, I, I say our best way to describe the Columbus's early impact because of the, of the pandemic, it looks like a Nike swoosh symbol. We had a sharp decline because revenues immediately dropped as wages, unemployment, as businesses were shuttered. But then we gradually inclined as businesses reopened or businesses were able to pivot, work remotely, or figure out how to continue commerce. If, if there's any other way you can unpack a bit why the income tax went down, just get a little more granular. You know, every city across America, you have to look at what fuels them. And some cities and states and, and counties are driven by funding from property taxes. Some might be sales taxes. The city of Columbus, uh, as well as a lot of cities in the Midwest, fueled by income tax. And so all of a sudden, we had to put on our not only futurist hats, but also really get into the mode of almost an obsessive degree of analyzing data in real time. And so one thing I am you know, really proud of is we created some kind of Fortune 500 level data analytics in really fast succession. And I give a lot of credit to our peers, our colleagues all across Central Ohio who lent us their executives, their data architects, their data scientists. It was awesome. But because the city of Columbus receives almost 80% of our revenue comes from income tax, i.e. taxes on people's wages, we had to get in that game real fast. So as businesses shuttered under the shutdown orders, some of them continued paying wages to people, others cut wages and cut staff, and that was the cliff you had to deal with. Precisely. So we saw within, you know, just in a few weeks' time, immediate loss of revenue because wages, unemployment, things like that. A couple things happened, Kathy. I started having to ask, you know, really on a daily basis, what do we have in our control to actually be able to bridge the gap? And what I mean by that is COVID is not a true economic recession. It is oftentimes a cash flow crisis. And so by being able to keep someone there in their business, at least operating and functional to get them over the hump that was the, the forced shutdown or to get someone and keep them in their house when they are facing you know, an eviction because of their inability to pay, that was something in, in my control. And so we started working on a weekly basis with the regional bank presidents, all of whom are women in, in the central Ohio region, which is pretty spectacular. And we met um, largely on a weekly basis and looked at what do we have in our control? How can we better extend support credit? How can we extend some of the federal and the state programs? And was it perfect? No. Did we give it our best? Yeah, we sure did. That's really, really quite amazing. So let's complete the the jigsaw puzzle here in your job. That's a billion dollars of revenue that you're responsible for collecting. The city, I'm sure, has some uh, loans, bonds, yeah, debts. Absolutely. It's got some tangible asset investments. So what else makes up the work of the auditor? So we do all of the you know, financial reporting. We do issue all of the debt for our capital projects, which is about a $5 billion portfolio. Very sizable. We work in large numbers here. Um, the investment portfolio is about $2.5 billion. But Kathy, there's no better city in America run like the city of Columbus. You know, we are the highest rated of the large cities. We have a triple A credit rating, which is just like a person has a personal credit rating. Right. That if they hire the rate credit rating, the better mortgage rates they can get. Same thing goes for government. And so uh, traditionally, the rating agencies 
this is something that I think is really important. This is like Moody's and Standard and Poor. That That's correct. Assess the strength of your finances and, and give you your, your credit score. Essentially. That's exactly right. And they've started it going beyond just the financials to also look at ESG. So the environmental, societal and governance. That is something that has changed in my lifetime and service. And I think a lot about you know, your different jobs, your different roles. The fact that governance is now, they're seeking to quantify the quality of government is something really unique. And I, I you know, look at the pandemic, look at the vaccine rollout. You know, there's things that can be tangibly quantified, if you will. But for example, they're also looking at things like the cost of inequality. And when you have restrictive policies anywhere in the United States, but at a state level, how are you preventing or the optimization, if you will, of your state's economy? How are you not optimizing your ability to retain or hire the best creative minds or keep people in your respective you know, city or lower companies? And so I, as auditor, uh, and I, you know, if, if I am defined as more like the CFO of the city, I like to say I have a fiduciary responsibility to ensure that we are doing the absolute best we can to not only grow the economic well-being of our city, but more importantly, our people. Because the stronger our people, the stronger our tax base will be. Yeah, you, know, you just touched on something I really wanted to explore with you. You've brought this much higher power analytics to the auditor's role in Columbus. And you are very skilled at that, maybe more so than some who might be in your seat because of your, your time on Wall Street, uh, as you said, seeing how it's done across the whole country and across many scales of government from school district on up to large city. Tell me more about what, those, what do those analytics tell you about the impacts of social diversity, socioeconomic diversity, and inequality on a city's well-being. I, I get the sort of philosophy level statement, but give us some more granular insights, sure. having dug into the analytics on that. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of give you my background, and I know you're a futurist too, but I think you know we really have to look at where we are at presence, where are we right now in the, the, the history of the United States. And as we look at this time of post-recovery, our modern economy, you know, where we are here in, I'll say, Columbus or any of the other large cities across the United States, the modern economy is largely based on innovation of, of information and talent. And as you know, where the workforce, where the talent is, that's always going to be where companies and ultimately the capital, the dollars go. It used to be where you're, I'm, I'm, my office right now is adjacent. I can see the uh, river down below me. Rivers used to, rail used to dictate the economy. But today, what I see is innovation, creativity, and talent. And so it's not just, you know, that, you know, in order to attract and, you know, kind of grow talent, we have to make sure that we are providing, uh, you know, culture or arts or vibrancy. But we have to also make sure that every single one, we're not limiting our ability to, to attract that quality of talent. And I've been speaking a lot to what inequality and the policies by that are very restrictive across this United States are doing um, to prevent our economic, I guess, optimization, if you will. I think the single most important economic development tool is quality of life. 
and the ability for someone to live their best and fullest life. And that not only just means, you know, where they live, you know, what we provide in terms of services, but frankly, that also means things like safe streets, really good options for education. It means doing things like ending homelessness, but, you know, being very thoughtful about, you know, creating more arts and culture. So uh, my role as auditor does expand to that. And my focus right now on Ohio in particular and Columbus is that the city of Columbus has long had a history of providing, you know, uh, protections for every person who walks in the city, every type of individual. And we're really proud of that. The state of Ohio has much more restrictive policies and it's not political. It's frankly very economic when you have things like bills that prohibit uh, the full livelihood of, of a transgendered person or you have you know, bills that do not protect LGBTQ Americans, you are not, it's the equivalent to me of putting a sign on your door that says X percent of the population is not welcome to do business here. And that is what I think is gonna hold us back. I wanna go back to your metaphor of experimenting in the kitchen until <laughs> something awesome comes out. I know it's your favorite metaphor for, you know, how do you tackle a problem, a municipal problem like refreshing the roads or yeah. financing some affordable housing. But the thing is, I'd, I'd like two things. Number one is, can you get a little more granular and walk us through some example where you you really wrestled with a problem and you found you know different debt instrument or yeah. a, a term of financing or something that really changed the outcome much for the better? And the second dimension that I'm interested in hearing you talk about is, you know, eggs don't talk back and have separate opinions. <laughs> but in your world, there are a lot of people out there that are involved. You're not the sole chef in the kitchen. Tell me about how that interpersonal dynamic works and how you've built the skill of working across political and personal and other boundaries. Well, I remember having a conversation with you one day where I ask you, what scares you? You know, like I, I was very sincere. I, and then I think about, you know, your accomplishments in space and the fact that you willingly got into a capsule. I, I've had, you know, a kitchen table larger than the capsule that you got in to go seven <laughs> miles under the ocean, right? But you said to me that you were more aware of the risk associated with recreational scuba diving than going seven miles under the sea. And so what, what's the difference there? Is it the human component, the possibility of human error? Well, I think when you're scuba diving, you're, you're the pilot in command that really does need to be mindful of whether you're doing everything just right, just so. Going along with Victor Vescovo on my deep sea dive, I had done the homework to satisfy myself about the quality of the engineering and the operation and, and his certification as a pilot. So like when we get on an airliner, you're putting yourself in the hands of a competent crew. You're not, you don't sit in the back of the airliner mindful every moment of everything the pilot up front is paying attention to and thinking about. So how do you balance that preparation with presence? Well, it's, I think I segmented, you, you prepare and then you just be in the moment because in, in the moment is where the opportunity to learn to do sciences. And in the moment is also, should anything start to go amiss, you want to be present in that moment and as, as able to be a constructive part of solving the problem yeah. as possible. I, I live with that mantra every single day. And, you know, when I start my mornings, I, 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 I shared with you, I like to watch kind of the city come to life. 
And I'll, I'll tell you an example, like during the pandemic, I would walk to work, City Hall where I am right now was, was closed during the, the shutdown. But I'm here by myself and I, I wanted to have my space here, I could work more effectively here. And I would walk to work and I would see things like restaurants who were absolutely shuttered, still staying open to be, provide food for the shelters. I saw you know, small businesses doing everything they could to try and figure out how to stay open. I would walk past a welding shop, for instance, that was welding outside with mask on just to try and keep things moving because frankly, that steel may be used for whatever important construction was happening in this area, right? So I, I like to say, I try and balance data with again, discussion. And I had a lot of conversations with these individuals and every single morning I start my day, I have a team member here who's a rock star, but she puts together this digital dashboard. And I can tell you on a daily basis exactly where the city is financially, how we're doing, what we're seeing with the local economy. It is a daily barometer and it is no different than the dashboards that you saw, a little less complicated, I suspect, but of the dashboards you saw as you were preparing to go into space. It's data, but data only goes so far. And you can, yes, you can only, you know, maybe perhaps at times improve what you can measure, but you have to have a human component. And that's where I've really, I think, become more present as a leader. I, I used to say very frequently that you can never, I can never be the smartest in a room, but I can be the most prepared. I maybe as I get a little older and more into this role, I am starting to also say, and I also want to be the most present in the moment understanding, hearing, learning. The fabric you know, of, our, of Columbus, like any large city, is its people. And that's, it's very humbling to be able to go and, and have very sincere conversations with people who are asking and, uh, for help. And, and let's be honest, you know, we are navigating right now in many places around this country, a historic crisis on top of layers of other crises. We, it's, it's, it's frankly, it's, it's, it's exhausting. We have, you know, well before the pandemic of COVID, we are already experiencing things like affordability crises, systemic racism. A lot of large cities declared racism a public health crisis. We had educational crises. So, you know, um, and I think there's also, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, now deep distrust with, with certain parts of government. And that was very hard for me to work through as we got into, especially the pandemic, because the support, the funds, the stimulus, we had to use alternate partners in the community to best distribute those funds to folks. Because let's, let's face it, there's, there was a real mistrust right now of certain parts of government. When you say you had to use alternate partners, tell me, what do you mean by that? So for example, I'll, I'll tell you, the Columbus Urban League did a spectacular job that's a, an organization that's it's headquartered here in Columbus, serving a great deal of, of population here in the city from small businesses to, they have some really great programming for, you know, just leadership to, I think where we have to get creative is being able to look at every decision. I love public-private partnerships. I really do. And I think collaborative, you know, kind of um, uh, engagement is really where where, where it's at. And I'll tell you, like something I have this dream about Kathy is that, you know, when I think about like what we can be doing today 
the innovation in government, right? I, I love creativity. I love innovation in government. I love the idea right now of really developing a, a hub here of social entrepreneurs. I think we can build infrastructure. We can definitely build local. We can consistently try and support our small businesses and optimize their ability to do, do their, their work here. But I love the idea of creating this mecca of social entrepreneurialism in Columbus, Ohio. And so for me in the 2022, that's where I'm focused, is doing what we can to bring in the best talent to help solve. Because I know this, uh, there are people that are doing this really well around this country, whether it be housing or education or what have you. But I'm really excited about that. Unpack that phrase for my social entrepreneurialism. What does that mean to you? It means, you know, just in the private sector, for example, we have entrepreneurs who are coming up with amazing ideas every single day, and they're getting capital from venture, you know, VC firms and so forth. But that's to produce a new product or create a new service or... That's exactly right. That's business entrepreneurship. So what's social entrepreneurship? That, for, to me, that means an individual or a company with a spectacular idea of, of how to solve one of the, the many challenges that governments face and do so in a way with agility, with frankly, business acumen, you know, in ways that we're not currently doing it. And that's creativity, innovation, uh, a blend of, you know, perhaps some really good talent. So for me, that means putting some ideas on a piece of paper and saying, here are the five challenges that we have in the city. I'll give you an example just to make this hyper clear. So very quickly during the digital divide, you know, or excuse me, the early part of the pandemic, we realized the digital divide the, the realities of it. And, you know, it was very easy. I will say this, it was, it's very easy uh, in theory to actually provide a hotspot or Wi-Fi to a household. The more difficult part is actually either incenting that household to use it or to be able to inspire the, their ability to use it. Because frankly, if you are having to figure out where your next job is gonna come from, where your next meal is gonna come from, using that hotspot and obtaining education, keeping you know, in tune to what was happening with public education may not be at the highest, you know, most important uh, hierarchy of need, right? So I very quickly saw that individuals, there was a big gap in the usage of, of technology. And so I reached out to a friend who runs as chief counsel to a huge social entrepreneur VC firm and he quickly put me in touch with two partners and across the country who do this, where they go into neighborhoods and they actually help figure out what is keeping a user from actually using technology to access education and what can we do differently? Because we were just, we're at a stalemate. We, we were, I was very unclear of how to take next steps and we able, we able to work with our partners to do so. Interesting. So yours is a very public role and like Mr. Dorian before you, you know, you are you walk the streets to work and talk to the welder and the, yeah. the restaurant owner who's trying to keep things afloat. But isn't another huge part of your job uh, staying socially connected with countless other civic leaders? I mean, how do you what is your day like? Oh, that's a good question. I, I talk for a living most days, Kathy, <laughs> to be quite honest. Is that how you felt? I mean, you 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 had some very interesting you you gosh you've gone from like absolute solitude of being the only person out in the entire universe to be well we're not clear about that yet there's a nine page <laughs> report released by the government yesterday but you you know it is true you were at complete solitude and then you also have run massive organizations 
And so, you know, I think your day is dictated by the job that you have, right? Yeah. So tell me about yours. Well, I love, I do love people and I really do like conversing. I get my energy. I will never be refueled from a nap. I would much rather go and have a, a, a conversation with someone. That is always where I get my energy. And so I would say I start my day. I'm very routine oriented though. It's <laughs> something that I think, you know, Mr. Dorian, I, I love that we, 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 you know, he is called Mr. Dorian. Yes, he is. <laughs> He's 86 now, but you know, something that we have in common is that he told me once, and I agreed completely, that we're both really good at being spontaneous if we have enough time to plan for it. <laughs> yes, I, I remember <laughs> him telling me that once. <laughs> exactly. So I, I think, you know, I've, um, I definitely have a lot of, let's say, um, I don't know, changes throughout the entire day. I have to call a lot of audibles based upon whatever the, the hot events are of that of that current week. But I would say for the most part, I start my day every single day looking at the data. What, how are we doing? What's the economic forecast look like? Are we doing anything differently? Because that really will help set the stage what conversations need to happen that day. One of the things that I would say, I'm, I'm fortunately, what would be like the best talent that I have is I am very fortunate and very, I guess I should say lucky to find people who are absolutely the best talent here in this, in this city. And my senior team is spectacular. I learn from them every single day. And so I, uh, I have a lot of conversations with them. I learn a lot from them. And then I also spend a lot of time in the community. You know, last year, as an example, Kathy, I um, realized, you know, last summer here in Columbus, a lot of public protest during the summer, a lot of, gosh, um, just pain, a lot of pain. And I wanted to learn, you know, in the absence of understanding what to do and understand how we can solve or better, better ourselves. I wanted us to go out and have uh, conversations and, and learn. And so that way I could be more informed to help with, with some of the decision-making. And so I started out in this plan last summer where I started out by meeting with five people who were frankly off the beaten path, individuals in neighborhood, neighborhood leaders, pastors, individuals that were doing things at a very frankly micro level because of their dedication to their neighborhood. And from those five people, I met with five more and then five more. I'm now up to over 150 individuals who I had previously had never been able to meet with, but these are individuals doing things that are spectacular at very, very local, very neighborhood levels. It's through those conversations that I find comfort and knowledge and being able to, frankly, be able to be more informed. Not having knowledge is very uncomfortable for me, which I'm going to guess it is for you too. <laughs> and I really, my goal for 22, we're starting, you know, kind of, I'm thinking a lot about this right now. And I do want to read you something that I, I want to get back to that social entrepreneurialism, which I think is just really special. But my goals for 22 are big and bold. And the objectives that I think we're setting for this, for this office and therefore for the city of Columbus, the North Star is an agenda of equity. And every decision, every policy, every program that we have coming out of this office is going to do something to advance the well-being of people. And I, I'm very proud of that. I want to ask you, though, I saw this quote in the Washington Post, which I, I think has been a North Star for me in the last you know, kind of, especially 12 months. And in the, the Washington Post states, America can put a rover on Mars, but it can't keep the lights on and water running in the city that birthed the modern space program. It can develop vaccines in record time to combat a world altering illness, 
but suffers from one of the developed world's highest death rates due to lack of prevention and care. It spins out endless entertainment to keep millions preoccupied during lockdown and keep tech shares riding high on Wall Street, but leaves kids disconnected from the access they need to do their schoolwork. And I've left that on my desk. I look at it all the time, but I, I think it's spectacularly true of our present day. Tell me, what, what, do you, what is your reflection of that? Well, I think there's a ton of truth. It's just basic observations. And it, it is something that I marvel over and fret over as well. Where do we find again? How do we find again? a greater sense of common purpose, of shared purpose and, and shared commitment in our hyper-partisan, very fractured times that we're in. So just as I would worry about the fate of a family that was so divided and, and isolated from each other, can that family remain intact? Is that still a family? I wonder about those dynamics at the national level in these times of ours. It's not the first time, I think, in the history of our country that we've been in very polarized hyper state of things, but this time is, I think it is different and unique, if nothing else, in the way that media and the speed of communications influences both how we divide and how we converse and affects both the how and maybe the weather, we can find our way back to some common purpose. It comes back to physics too. And one of the things you asked before, which was kind of questioning what are the barriers to being able to get things done? Some of those barriers that I have to quantify, uh, it sounds highly technical, but I have to consider, I should say, control, ego, and partisanship. Those are things that I constantly uh, consider as I'm having conversations. You know, I'll give you a, an example. When you think about, you know, what will be the tipping point, if you will, with some of the divisiveness around this really, I'll say, anti-people policies, you know, banning things uh, related to transgendered persons, eliminating transgendered rights, LGBTQ rights, et cetera. I can go and have a conversation until I'm blue in the face with certain individuals. And I will say on both sides, this is not, you know, one side or the other, but then I can put some economics some numbers, you know, and I'll tell you like, you know, when the Title 10 gag rule was put into place, and you know what that said was, if any medical professional, nurse, doctor, whomever, health department at a community were to say, if an individual, a woman came in saying, I think I'm pregnant, what are my options? If in the literature or in the verbalized communication that the medical professional presented included the word abortion, that entity, that doctor, that nurse, that healthcare center would be eliminated from the Title X funding, which is a federal funding program put into place by Richard Nixon in 1970, and is largely extremely bipartisan. Everyone wants women to have access to good health care. It's what will keep women able to, to, frankly, earn and learn. This was very early in my time as, as auditor, but what I saw, Kathy, was you know, here in the state of Ohio, if, if that gag rule went into effect and the Title X money was eliminated, we were looking at massive changes to funding basic healthcare. And I, again, because of just the, you know, whether it be Planned Parenthood or other words like abortion in all of this propaganda, I could go and talk to folks until I'm blue in the face about why this should not be eliminated. But then I would say things like, okay, where are you gonna come up with the $31 million 
to keep women with access to healthcare. And they look at me and like, oh boy, well, we didn't realize it had an economic component. So my role, and I spend a lot of time doing this, is putting a, a price tag, if you will, to decisions, whether they be unequal decisions, decisions about you know, providing services, or things that I'm really passionate about, like childcare. You know, I think there's some game changer opportunities, some game changer programs that governments can employ right now to really be able to optimize their workforce and to really be able to grow their revenues in a, in a meaningful way. More revenues equals more really good services that we can provide. So that's the best part about my job is being able to come up with those creative ideas. I want to move back to one other point and then warn you that I close with a little lightning round of questions just to end on a, an amusing note. But back to Mr. Dorian. Oh boy, yeah. Who you have likened the 50 year, 50 year run auditor of Columbus, huge influence on the city. I think probably known or at least the name known by, I can't imagine there was anyone in Columbus that didn't know at least his name. That's correct. And you've likened him to Derek Jeter because of all of his awards as we've said. So I have to ask you, you get elected and you walk into that office the office you know, you've worked alongside him for so long, but it's now you. Did you ever have sort of an imposter moment? How do little old me follow Derek Jeter? Did you have any of that sort of wavering or doubt or, or sense of daunted by the shoes you were filling? You know, I love, I love that question. I am every single day, not in an imposter way, but every single day aware of his legacy of leadership. And I can still call him. And in fact, during the pandemic, Kathy, I, I did call him. But as you know, there has never been an economic model absent. We can go back to like 1918, 1919, right? But we don't have any models from which to, to build upon to be able to predict what would happen, you know, and it has happened through COVID. So I, I jokingly called him a few times and I offered him a job. Um, he declined each time. <laughs> His wife said yes, but he declined. <laughs> For uh, you know, everyone kind of listening from around the world, you know, he's, as you could imagine, insatiable when it comes to knowledge. I am delighted to have a partner in mentorship. I would say our relationship has become more familial. You know, when I was working for him, it was like working for the hardest professor I ever had and blisteringly so because he was so good. I would say he keeps getting smarter every single day, but what a challenge to kind of lift up to. I remember coming into office my very first day on the job, Kathy, and it was a January 2nd, 2018. And I come into City Hall, a place that I had worked in before. I knew it very well, of course. And I came into office and there was a note on his desk. And let me describe his desk. It looks like an old warship circa the 1940s was repurposed into this desk. I, I joked that I needed a tetanus shot to be able to open the drawers, okay, because they were so rusted together. <laughs> but the, the note on the desk said a few things, important notes that I wanted to share with you on your first day. And I, I won't share all of them, but you know, basically it was just do your best and be proud of yourself at the end of the day. You know, only you at the end of the evening can look in the mirror and say, did I do enough and did I do a good job? And I, I thought about that. I still ca I kept the note. It makes me, um, it makes my heart very happy when I look at it. 
But that same day, I got in, he had an old city car, an old municipal vehicle, and the guy was frugal, right? So a few things happened that day that were just, I guess, um, a testament to the way this guy worked. So I get in this old city car and I'm getting ready to drive to a meeting and I'm, I'm driving and I take a turn and I realize the power steering went out. And it's January 2nd. I shortly realized I turned the heater on when I got in the car. I'm wrestling this, you know, big Lumina uh, back onto like my side of the road. And I'm realizing there's no heat in this car. And so I, I called him later that evening and I was like, on the list of important things to let me know about, did you think to tell me your car doesn't have power steering? And he started laughing and he's like, well, it only goes out on certain curves. And I was like, again, something very important I should know. Very, very important. <laughs> but that was just who he was. You know, the small stuff, he kind of glossed over. He really did. He had, I could tell you right now exactly how he would carry out his day. Because I think in a world, especially where we have very little we can control, the things that you can control are maybe what time you, you eat, how much you're able to sleep, if, yes, if that's controllable, and how you kind of orchestrate your days to be able to be the most effective leader you can be. Those are still things that I, I do myself too. And I think maybe you as well find whatever you can control to be very comforting because a lot of it, you just can't. Yeah, true. Very true. Well, let's do some lightning round. Fun. Ready? Ready. Rather go to a theater or to a concert? Concert. What's your favorite movie? Sound of Music. Ah, haven't had that one before. <laughs> you can have dinner with one person from history. Who would that be? Lincoln. What do you think the bravest thing you've ever done is? Very truthfully, my mom passed earlier this year in January, and I had to uh, take her off life support. And that was brutal. I can imagine. Yeah. That was horrible. Uh, sorry about that. That's a great question, though. Where are you happiest? Doing things manually, physical labor, while also thinking. All right. Is that in your garden or home repair? <laughs> I'm terrible or? at gardening. <laughs> I am terrible at gardening. You know what? I love um, actually just doing projects. So it could be um, laying tile. No joke. I'm quite handy. I love doing things physically because that's when I can do my, my best thinking. Where do you do your best thinking? Uh, usually uh, out on a walk or out in nature. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, <laughs> the earth no, scientist. That, that's fair. That's fair. And finally, one word of advice for someone in the early stages of their career, what, what would you share with them? You will never, you know, be told no if you don't ask and use your resources. You know, Kathy, I, I want to ask this question of you, but I have so many strong people, yourself included, women in this, you know, region, women nationally who have helped me get places because I've just asked and or they've offered. I try in my role today to do a better job of lifting my hand out to say, hey, do you want to come to a meeting with me? Or do you want to come to an event just because you're going to get in the same room with someone? And that I, for me personally, I ask for guidance. I ask for uh, knowledge. But for example, I would offer to go and, and I've worked with several elected leaders in my past. If I go and pick up lunch, can we just have lunch and chat? The answer was always yes. And that, that was critical. So I, I just keep asking and don't, don't think you're not worth it. Um, same question for you. I'd be very curious to hear your answer. 
Well, actually, follow closely on what you just said with a little bit of a twist. You can call up anybody. Don't start thinking they're loftier than you or they wouldn't return your call. You'd be shocked if you call someone up, email them and ask, can I buy you a cup of coffee? I'd love to learn about how your world works. Mm-hmm. And it might be someone who you think could help you someday get a job. Don't be asking them about how do I get a job? Don't be asking them about you. Ask about how their world works. They will love telling you about it. You'll learn a tremendous amount about the place you think you maybe want to be in. You know, you'll be surprised where that conversation goes. But if you're trying to figure out your next stage in life or a career and you're exploring what the prospects might be, I've recommended that technique to lots of people. I used it when I was leaving NOAA because a friend, so this goes way back to the Carter administration, a friend who developed this idea when she had to find a job for herself after the Carter administration told me the story. I used it when I was just starting to think about after my first NOAA stint, what do I want to do when this is over? So you know, well in advance of that deadline hitting me, I just started calling people up and taking them out to lunch and learning about how their world worked, which helped me understand and think about is that, is that really a direction I would want to go? You know, when I think about COVID and the pandemic, you know, it has been a, a loss of time for so many. But I also think about especially individuals who are in management, who are maybe cutting their teeth with organizations, really trying to find their stride in their careers. Some of my favorite experiences learning have been those conversations in hallways, the conversations when you get in a car and you say, what could I have done better or differently? And I think there has been a a gap, if you will. How do do you think we will recover from that? I I think that those kind of encounters and the, the tutoring and mentoring that they embody. That's some of the fabric we have to find ways to bring back to organizations. It's one thing to say all the 40 and 50 somethings who'd been five or 10 or 15 years in their job were able to flip to virtual and work quite effectively in businesses and lines of work where that's possible. But as you say, the, the new folks just joining, there's a tutelage that's happening by being together around a mixture of people in a workplace that stops when you all go home and work each from your own laptop. But it's really vital to preparing the next generation. It's vital to the sustainment of your business or your company or your organization. The word empathy, right? You have to understand empathy. Empathy and understanding and, you know, the nuance and the tacit knowledge that is part of being effective in any workplace. Kathy, do you think, you know, right now, the ideas of like compassion and empathy Give me some, maybe give me some advice and therefore the listener's advice on prioritizing that. I think people during the pandemic, right, you know, have been so focused on the day-to-day and keeping the lights on and it's been exhausting, right? A lot of people, I have a lot of team members who have families, of course, I'm sure many listeners have had to play teacher, principal, general contractor, banker, you know, everything just to keep the household moving. How do you reprioritize things like getting back to that word empathy and community and giving yourself maybe the allowance of time to reconnect. Yeah, I think the pandemic forced us to lose a lot of the contact we all really cherish and value. But I think over time, it's also made us, I hope, more keenly aware of how much we do value it. And I know a number of organizations, even while gathering everybody by Zoom, have have had the wisdom to shift to 
you know, we're doing Zoomless Fridays, so you can actually yeah. concentrate on being present with your family, recognizing now you're having to be homemaker and teacher and this or that. And also getting their team together now and then just for a casual hour, no, no work, just chat, sending out a little goodie bag of food. So everyone's like you're at a happy hour together, you know, snacking on the chips and cookies together, just trying to find snippets of ways to reinforce or remind ourselves of the value of the connection, even when we were straining to have to do it over the wires. A lot of the difficulties, I was going to say every, but a lot of the difficulties of just interpersonal were because when you are prohibited from being able to connect with one another, we have no experience with one another. It's really basic, but I'm sure many listeners who are leading, leading organizations or actively managing employees are trying to figure out ways to reconnect. Yeah. Um, I think you know the anxiety uh, is real of individuals returning to workforce in offices. Uh, for me, it's not. I, I've had a lot of, frankly, very uh, highly skilled individuals, a lot of interesting when you have a financially motivated office, you do have right brain, left brain, you know, clear differences. Right. A lot of introverts on one side of the room, few of us extroverts on the other. And I, I've seen some people truly excel very meaningfully through their ability to be in control of their environments. Mm -hmm. They can get up at four mm -hmm. in the morning, they can work out, they're behind their desk and they get their work done by two when their brain starts changing. To fry. Yeah, right, exactly. Whereas I'm at 9 p.m., I'm still good to go. So I've actually really studied that very sincerely to think about why would I get in the way of your productivity? Yep. And how do we optimize that while still being able to maintain some level of chemistry and connectivity? And common threads. Yeah. It's it's imperfect right now, but I hope to find that balance. Again, it is always delightful to talk with you. I don't want to keep you past time. Thank you so much for sharing your insights about you use words together that some would say are an oxymoron in creative government. But under your leadership, you proved that they can go together and they do go together very well. Kathy, it is never a question of will Columbus or will the United States recover? It is how we will recover. Indeed. And that's what I'm focused on. Indeed. Thank you so much for being with us today, Megan. Thank you, friend. Uh, do you think I still have time to get my education and to go to space? Uh, no, but you can <laughs> save up and buy a ticket. <laughs> Very well. <laughs> I'll, I'll work on that, my friend. I should probably get out of the public service then. Huh? <laughs> hey, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you so much, Megan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.